3: Children of the Night, and welcome. Well, for the first time in several weeks, I don't have any housekeeping to share with you. So I'd like to kick off this episode with a thank you to patrons Paul Cardulo, Ivan Tate, Dion Bassery, and John Ediger. Your amazing support makes this show possible, and we all appreciate it so much. If you'd like to count yourself among those that lend their shadows to this bulky mass of darkness, well, you know what to do. Patreon.com slash Tales to Terrify. We're headed back for a brief visit to Vancouver Island this week. The West Coast Trail on Vancouver Island is a beautiful place to hike. Disconnected spires of rugged earth jutting from the shoreline topped with lonely trees. The deep, lush green of dense evergreen forest. The white rush of fresh water cascading into the churning sea. It's about as pure and serene a landscape as you could imagine. But scattered along the rocks and sand of the shoreline pokes the occasional ragged shape of rusting metal. Worn in angular panels, pocked and twisted from a century of being battered by the sea. Grim reminders of what some call the worst maritime disaster to ever occur along that stretch of the coast, an area known as the Graveyard of the Pacific. The only remnants of the steamship, the SS Valencia. Well, almost the only remnants. Built in the late 1800s, the Valencia wasn't a large ship by any means. A small passenger steamer used to carry everything from civilian passengers and cargo to troops. She wasn't a young ship, either, having spent more than 20 years at sea before entering service as a passenger steamer based out of San Francisco. It was a bright and sunny January day in 1906 when the SS Valencia left her home port of San Francisco, bound for Seattle. The route wasn't her usual one. Her sister ship, the S.S. Pueblo, which normally covered the route, was in dry dock for repairs. But the route was an important one, and the Valencia was set to cover it. Sixty-five crew and 108 passengers boarded and waved goodbye as the steamer pulled away from the docks and set course northward. As the Valencia began to wind her way along the California coastline, the sailing was relatively smooth. The air out on the ocean was crisp, but the occasional view of the rugged mountains spilling into the ocean of the coast was breathtaking, especially as the sun began to set on their first day, painting everything in deep hues of orange and crimson the Valencia continued to travel north through the night. But by the time the light of morning began to seep through the clouds, any hope of glimpsing land was eclipsed by blowing snow and bone-chilling winds. A storm had moved in during the night, churning up the calm waters and obscuring the stars needed for navigation. Little known to many of the passengers, The Valencia had been traveling blind for hours, creeping its way northward as carefully and cautiously as possible. The mood aboard the ship, which had been light and relaxed the day before, had changed. A quiet heaviness settled over the passengers, their nervous whispers drowned out by the howling wind and salt spray crashing in violent plumes off the bow. Suddenly, there was a high-pitched shriek of agony from below decks. The screeching groan of metal on rock. Crew and passengers were pitched from their feet, tumbling hard across the deck into railings and rigging. The groan was quickly replaced with the audible, static rush of fast-flowing water. The SS Valencia had struck a reef and was taking on water. As much as I'm sure it pained him to admit it, upon inspecting the damage, the captain was experienced enough to know that there was no question. The ship was done for. In a final effort to buy time and slow its sinking, he ordered it beached, and the Valencia was turned toward shore. If it was the reef they'd hit, as he suspected, They couldn't be far from land. But as the ship became further hung up on the rocks, panic immediately took hold. Caution and common sense were claimed by the sea. Going against the captain's orders, the crew hastily began launching lifeboats, throwing passengers into the small rowboats and dropping them to the water below. Three of the lifeboats overturned in the high winds, and crashing waves before ever reaching the water below, spilling their occupants into the icy waters. Others capsized nearly as soon as they reached the surface, dragging screaming passengers down into the churning waters. One lifeboat came free from its lines before it could even be loaded and was swiftly carried away by the hungry waves. Of the many passengers and crew that had fallen into the water during the initial frenzy, twelve men managed to kick and claw their way to the shoreline. But the ocean was hesitant to let them go, and before all of them could scramble to safety, a wave, like a giant watery hand, swatted them from the cliff face and swept three of them back out to sea. The remaining nine Soaked, frozen, and no doubt in shock, set off in search of help. The remaining passengers and crew huddled together on the deck of the Valencia, frozen with fear and cold. A handful of lifeboats remained on the swiftly sinking ship, but after what happened to their shipmates, few were willing to risk the treacherous waters. Finally, the boatswain and a small crew of volunteers decided to hazard an attempt at shore. Maybe, just maybe, they could secure a rescue line to help those remaining souls find their way to shore. But once the lifeboat was on the water, the waves and wind were too high, the storm too violent for them to focus on anything but their own immediate survival. As they fought against the surging waters, the rough, heavy lifeline they'd tied to cleats on the boat's rail came loose and was swept away by the sea. Fueled by fear and adrenaline, the small group managed to make it to shore, and immediately set off for help as well. As they glanced back toward the listing ship, they could just barely see the ghostly pale faces of the remaining passengers and crew peering at them through the mist. Even from that distance, the despair was painted plain on their faces. But it was the thin veneer of hope that was the most painful to witness, as the sound of singing drifted in on the pounding surf, the soft melody of a hymn. Nearer, my God, to thee. While help eventually arrived, it was too late for many. The weather was too rough for the ships that had come to the rescue to get close enough to help. The remaining lifeboats were launched, and several survivors eventually recovered, but many passengers, trusting that rescue was imminent, stayed on the sinking ship. By the time an overland rescue party arrived, all they could see as they gazed down from the cliffs overlooking the wreck was the masts and rigging protruding from the water, and a handful of souls left clinging to them. Souls that, as the rescue crew watched helpless from the shore, were torn free by pounding waves and dragged down by the sea. Of more than 170 people who had boarded the ship in San Francisco, only 36 men had survived not a single woman or child made it to shore alive. But despite being torn to pieces and pulled down into the depths, that wasn't the last that was seen of the Valencia. Six months after the disaster, word came back that a lifeboat full of skeletons had been found in a watery cave off the coast of Pacina Point, a cave entirely blocked by boulders but when a crew was sent to recover it, the cave and the lifeboat were nowhere to be found. Then, in 1910, the Seattle Times newspaper reported sightings of the Valencia off that same stretch of coast on Vancouver Island. Since then, there have been regular sightings of an old turn-of-the-century steamer drifting in the rough waves, clearly taking on water. Lifeboats carrying the rotting remains of frantically paddling passengers, have also been sighted. Corpses with skeletal limbs who struggled to paddle oars against the current, racing for shore, only to disappear in the swell of the waves. Stranger still, in 1933, a lifeboat was found floating in Barkley Sound, not far from Pacina Point. While the boat was clearly old, its condition was surprisingly sound, the wood solid and the paint looking only vaguely worn. And while it was empty, given its condition, it appeared to have been launched recently. Once it was towed back to shore, though, and officials had a chance to examine it, they were perplexed. Valencia, the nameplate read, and the number five painted on the hull. For 27 years, lifeboat number 5 had been adrift in the famously treacherous waters and had somehow survived. Not only survived, but remained almost perfectly intact. While I'm not sure what happened to the lifeboat itself, you can see the nameplate from the boat at the Maritime Museum in Victoria. And if you're a seasoned hiker up for an adventure, you can find the remnants of the ship itself still scattered along the shore of Pachina Beach. But if the winds blow just right, and the tides are in your favor, you might catch a glimpse of more than just wreckage. The ghostly vision of a sinking steamer run aground on the reef, rails lined with the haunting pale faces of those who never made it off alive. Now, what say we weigh anchor And find ourselves some fiction. We have one tale for you tonight, which comes from Maria Haskins. Maria Haskins is a Swedish Canadian writer and translator. She writes speculative fiction and poetry and currently lives just outside Vancouver with a husband, two kids, and a very large black dog. Her work has appeared in Black Static, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Flash Fiction Online, Shimmer. Cast of Wonders, and elsewhere. Find out more on her website, MariaHaskins.com or follow her on Twitter at MariaHaskins. Children of the Night, join me. For Maria Haskins, It's Easy to Shoot a Dog. Originally published in Beneath Ceaseless Skies, September 2018.
0: It's easy to shoot a dog. Susanna watched Papa do it one bitter morning, winter before last. When old Caro couldn't get up off his blankets, so she knows how it's done. You tie the dog to a fence post, put a soup bone on the ground, load the musket with the right measure of powder and a lead bullet, aim it at the dog's head. "'and light the charge with the match cord. "'Long as your hands don't shake and the dog doesn't move, "'you'll blow its head clean off.' "'It is an act of kindness and of mercy,' "'Papa told her when he saw her watching from the porch, "'to spare him the suffering otherwise to come.' "'Then he lit the powder,' rough hands steady as the discharge scattered a flock of crows into the clouds. Restless now on her cot beneath the rafters, listening to the quiet breaths of her own dog asleep beside her on the floor. Susanna hears that musket blast again, feels the shudder of the recoil through her bones, the sting of powder in her nostrils sharp enough to make her wince. Judging by the moonlight, it's long past midnight, and she knows it's time to go. Yet she lingers beneath the covers. She thinks of how she brought this dog home as a pup one October day ten years ago, when she was seven, same year as Mama raised a stone with her brother's name in the boneyard thinks of how old Caro took to that pup right away, watching it with kindly hang-dog eyes as it blundered wobbly-legged through the yard and garden. That pup grew up with her, became this rangy, flop-eared mutt that curls up beneath the table when she eats, sniffs out hares and grouse in the woods for her, twines its body round her knees to greet her when she comes in from the barn. For ten years, she'd cared for it with gentle patience, the way no one's ever cared for her. And for ten years, it's followed her wherever, sharing her bed, her paths, her warmth. Its soul and shadow mingling with hers beneath this tarred roof, beneath this well-worn patch of sky and heaven. It's easy to shoot a dog. Easier still if you don't think about it for too long. If you can heft that musket clean of doubt or guilt. Cold floorboards bend and creak beneath her stockinged feet as she gets up, reaching for her clothes in the darkness. There's the gleam of frost outside, even though it's only early fall. But then, it's been a hard year already. A couple of bad omens, a harsh winter followed by a slow spring, wolves ravaging sheep, church silver stolen off the altar. They even burned a witch in town just after Easter. She went to look. But though the woman's hair was shorn and she was already burning, Susanna could tell it wasn't anyone she knew. After, when the bones still smoldered, The priest, in his stiff black cassock, puffed himself up before the crowd, assuring them the witch's spells and crafts would all unravel now that she was dead. Susanna stood there until dusk, waiting to see if anything would change. But the world remained the same as far as she could tell. Beneath the shearling coat and felted woolen breeches, on the chair beside the bed, Susanna's fingertips brushed the embossed cover of Nana's ancient hymnal. But tonight, she has no prayers to tuck between its yellowed pages. Instead, she reaches down, finding the warmth of fur and breath that has always been more dependable than faith and supplication. The dog yawns as it stretches, Gazing up at her with brown and faithful eyes, jaunty tail already wagging, it's eager to go with her, watching as she gathers up Papa's musket, tucks the tinderbox into her pocket, slings the supple leather pouch that holds the powder and the bullet across her chest. Come, she whispers, so as not to wake Mama or Papa and heads downstairs, slipping into the dark with the dog trotting, keen on white-toed paws, following. Far back, as Susanna can remember, she always wanted a dog of her own, but Mama and Papa would not allow it. No matter how she begged or pleaded, they did not relent. Mama even struck her at the end of one long day when she got tired of her cheek. Old Carrow was enough, they thought, keeping the yard and barn safe with his growl and bark. But much as she loved that jowly hound, she knew he was not wholly hers, knew he loved her papa and her waddling, weak-chinned brother more than her. She craved a creature that would be bound to her, to love and roam with as she saw fit. For months she prayed for a puppy, hands clasped around Nana's hymnal every Sunday, as she sat in church beneath that soaring vault, crowded with angels and apostles, peering up at the mother and the son, at the vines and doves, staring at the polished silver cross studded with sardonyx and amber above the altar. But God did not relent either. In one chill October morning, she wandered off into the forest to find a pup herself. She was seven years old, hemmed in on all sides by chores and rules and commandments, her brother scampering in her wake. As always, she was supposed to watch him, the louse, same as every day since he'd been born. Stay here, she ordered telling him of the ravenous wolves stalking the glades and paths, of their howls threading through mist and moonlight, of the witch weaving blood and bone into magic spells, changing children into pigs and sheep before she took their skins, of the trolls lurking neath the bridges and the rocks, of the vitra roaming the dells and hollows, snaring the unwary. But he would not leave her alone, no matter what she said or did, toddling along behind her, undaunted. At first, she followed the trails she knew, to the places she'd gone to gather firewood and berries, to harvest birch bark for baskets, to forage for sticky-capped mushrooms in the early fall, and bright green spruce shoots in spring. Then she wandered further, across the bridge, across the river, to where she'd sometimes let the goats graze, meadows hazy with tall timothy grass and yarrow in the summer. Yet no dog could she find in that frosty, wilted pasture, nor anywhere else her feet would take her. "'There is a pup,' she told her brother. When he wept and said he was hungry,' There were countless places in the woods where a pup might hide, waiting to be found, waiting to be saved. We just have to find him, just a little further. She kept saying it, clinging to the words as if speaking them out loud would make it so. Her brother cried most of the way, because his ankle twisted, because he was four years old, because the wolves howled. Because he was cold, and she'd forgotten to bring his mittens. Because he was too far away from Mama. No matter how hard and unforgiving her calloused hands were most days. When darkness fell, they trudged on, her brother sucking his fingers and holding on to her coat. He followed her wherever, because that was the way it had always been. Since the first day Mama placed him in her care. Ten years ago, when she walked home through the woods with that new pup whimpering in her arms, when she snuggled it close and felt the warmth of its soft pink belly, she did not regret the choice she'd made. She did not regret it, even when Mama and Papa shrieked and cried, asking where she'd been, asking about her brother. She told them he'd run off, that she'd followed but could not find him, no matter how she looked. Even at the age of seven, the lies felt smooth and true upon her tongue. And Mama wailing, like she'd ever cared for him, and Papa's face gone hard as rocks and iron, as if he'd even once held him close. "'You were supposed to watch him,' Mama said, "'her voice so rough with anger it raked Susanna's skin. "'I did, and I tried!' "'Papa saw the pup then, cowering between her legs. "'I found it in the woods when I was searching,' she said, "'and picked it up, felt their two hearts pounding, "'close like breath and blood. "'It's mine to keep.' "'Papa raised his hand. "'Mama raised her voice.' But what could they do? They placed a stone with the boy's name in the boneyard once they'd combed the woods in vain. After that, Papa went back to the fields and forest, and Mama went back to washing laundry for the burghers. Susanna had spent three days and nights wandering the woods with her brother, scrounging for frostbitten berries off the rowan's. "'chewing bark and pine sap to fend off the hunger. "'In the dark, she whispered lullabies to hush her brother up, "'trying not to shout or strike him, "'even when he would not stop wailing. "'By the time the old woman found them, "'they were chilled through bone and marrow, "'her brother sniveling snot and tears. "'Susanna was crying, too, at least when no one saw.' The old woman looked them over, long and thoughtful, her gnarled hand resting on the curved blade tucked into her belt. Though Susanna did not think she'd need that steel to end them. Once they'd been weighed and measured beneath that gaze, the woman took them to a sod-roofed cottage. Evergreen ivy and withered bougainvillea, snaking up the timbered logs and eaves, Skulls and bones dangling in the trees outside. Fresh hides stretched tight in wooden frames for tanning in the yard. The woman fed them mutton soup and fresh baked bread. She combed the pine needles and mud out of their hair. She put a fat wood pine root on the fire to warm them. She wrapped the boy in a sheepskin and laid him down on a cot by the hearth. Susanna sat at the table, sipping soup and watching. She saw the way the old woman used her mortar and her pestle, the way she hung the bunches of gathered herbs from the rafters, the way she mixed the potions and the salves on the counter below the deep-set window, the way she opened that heavy black book of hers, inked letters twined about with gold and scarlet, She listened to her song, chanting words over her brother to mend his broken foot. She knew what that woman was, and the woman knew she knew it. But neither of them spoke the word. All I wanted was a dog, Susanna said, though no one had asked for any explanation. I'd give anything for a pup of my own. The woman shook her head her small bird-bone earrings clicking beneath her waist-long, gray-streaked hair. Silly girl! Pups come along all the time. Wait till spring, they'll be rolling out of every barn and cottage. I've waited years already. I want a dog to care for now before winter comes. The woman laughed at that, at Susanna, yet she looked at her with something akin to understanding. No patience in you, is there? Don't go looking for things to love, girl. Life's easier if you're not shackled to another. She nodded at the sleeping boy, gave a knife's edge of a grin. One such chain of care has been slipped on you already. As you grow, there will be others, and they will be tighter still. Susanna looked at her little brother. He was quiet then, but well did she remember his whining and his weeping, how he slowed her down and clung to her at every step. You're a clever girl, I can tell. Once I, too, was a clever girl who wanted things that would not be given to me. There are ways to get the things you want, but the getting's rarely free or easy. She gazed at Susanna, then turned away. No, I do not think you want the dog that I could give you. Go home. Obey your parents. Become what they want you to be. Susanna looked at her, thinking of the black book the woman had closed when she saw Susanna peeking. Of the words she'd sung to change and heal the boy's bones and flesh. She thought of whispered winter tales of children gone astray and of the raging hellfire awaiting those who used charms and curses to get what God, in prayer, would not supply. I'd give anything for a puppy. The old woman turned from the cauldron a gleam of embers in her sharp blue eyes as she peered through the mark of smoke and steam seeing true and through. Not many are willing to give anything. What would you give to get what you want? Susanna swallowed another mouthful of that soup, listening to her brother snuffling beneath the sheepskin, looking at that gnarled root of a hand stirring the cauldron and she thought she knew what the question and answer meant. Anything. Ten years on, Susanna is walking through the woods with the dog scampering in her wake. Might be his gait is stiffer now, might be his maw is grizzled, but he still follows her wherever. His soul and shadow still mingled with her own. There's a price for everything, the old woman told her that night beside the fire. But you are only seven, and clever as you are, I'll still give you ten years until payment's due for what I'll give you. By then, the shackles of your life will be chafing both your skin and soul. Then... You must bring yourself to me to learn and listen, to stay beneath my roof as long as I see fit. And you must bring back what I gave you for me to keep. Ten years ago, as Susanna gazed at the fat wood smoldering low, as she listened to her own fiery heart burning hot and greedy beneath her ribs, the deal she struck seemed a well considered bargain. She never thought ten years would pass by so quick, and if she thought of the deal at all those first few years after the woman showed her the way home, she mostly thought of the snug bed in that small cottage, of the smell of herbs and mutton, of days without chores or errands, of the inked and illuminated pages of that heavy book, of the liberty to roam beneath the trees rather than feel the burn of lie as she helped Mama launder sheets by the creek. But lately, as the years have run down through the glass, she's turned and twisted all the words the woman spoke. She's run her fingers over them, the smooth and the rough, pondering their full meaning as she's laid awake at night with the dog warm and heavy by her side. Bring back what I gave you for me to keep. She's thought of the scraped clean skulls hanging from the branches, of bones boiled white, of hides stretched and drying beneath the trees. She's thought of the wicked knife in the old woman's belt, of the claws and teeth dangling from the charms. She's felt the dog's soft ears between her fingers felt the curve and sleekness of his skull and jaw beneath the silken fur. And the fear that only tickled neath her skin ten years ago has turned into a constant itch and ache. She's tried to find a way out. She prayed for salvation in church, with the wine and bread burning on her tongue, hands clasped around Nana's hymnal. Even though she knows neither the mother nor the son, nor the angels and apostles will help a girl like her. It's easy to shoot a dog, as a kindness, as a mercy, to spare it the pains and suffering otherwise to come, beneath that wicked knife enchanted chanted words. Susanna has held the musket more than once, felt the weight of it, heavy like her own heart in her hands. Ten years. It is a decent length of life for any dog. Yet even so, the old woman's words no longer seem like a fair trade or trusty promise. They seem a threat and portent, a shadow creeping ever closer through the pines and spruce. Susanna knows the payment's overdue. She knows the old woman will claim it, one way or another, whether Susanna goes to her or whether she waits for Susanna to come knocking on the door. She knows the price, knows what she would lose and gain if she were to pay it. So she's learned the things that might confound an old woman such as that. Sardonyx and amber, salt and silver, mistletoe and iron, scattered pebbles on the path. A hagstone on the fence-post by the road, Hazel planted near the house. Even so, her fear runs deep. How many times has she stayed awake listening for the old woman's steps coming up the pebble-strewn path, crossing the line of salt she laid at the threshold, climbing up the creaking stairs? How many nights has she waited for her barred door to shiver, for the latch and hook to bend and warp and snap, for the hinges to break, the wood to crack beneath the old woman's power. It's easy to shoot a dog. It's harder to shoot a witch. The bright frost shatters beneath Susanna's boots as she heads deeper in between the bowls, searching out the way she came and went ten years ago. She's never cried, Not in ten years. Not once. Not so anyone could see or hear it, anyway. And even if she tasted those tears, even then, she knows she'd make the same bargain again. Anything is what she said. But whatever promise she made when she was seven, she knows now that she cannot give up this dog cannot let him suffer beneath the knife, cannot let his skin be taken, cannot aim the muzzle at his head even to spare him the pain otherwise to come. Susanna walks with one hand on the musket, treading through dawn and day and dusk into the shiver dark of another night with the dog beside her. She walks until she finds the sod-roofed cottage one candle lit in its northern window. In the rippled moonlight, slipping through the chasing clouds, she sees the pale skulls hanging from the trees. hears their hollow song of wind and bone. And she sees an empty frame set up to tan a new hide behind the house, wooden pegs and sinew thread ready for the stretching. The old woman knows they're coming, her heavy feet already treading the warped wooden boards within the timbered walls. When the door glints open, when the door glints open, there's a breath of utter silence when Susanna thinks she might turn back or falter. But no. There the old woman is, in the doorway, gray hair tangled round her brow blue eyes peering through the shadows, just a thin line of darkness between them now. Come inside, the old woman coos. I thought you might not come. Thought you'd changed your mind. Thought they'd find a way to hinder you, perhaps. I should not have worried. At seventeen, you are still a clever girl. The wood and metal of Papa's musket is smooth and heavy in Susanna's hands. She can smell the powder, smell the slow-burning matchcord, woven hemp cooked with saltpeter. In the darkness, she puts one hand on Brother's head to calm him, to calm herself. And yet they both tremble. I told you I would teach you and I will the old woman whispers, soft words snaking round Susanna's pounding heart. I'll teach you all the things you'll never learn at home, not from the preacher, not from that good book of yours, nor from any husband they might choose for you. I'll teach you all the craft a clever girl might want to know. Susanna knows it is the truth. She knows she could reach for all that power, pay the price, watch brothers hide scraped and stretched in that yard and be done with it. She knows the old woman could teach her how to grasp the forces of earth and sky and fire, of wind and water, and bend them to her will. She knows the old woman would open that heavy book, and let her read its pages, learn the chants in verses written there. Stranger songs than any printed in Nana's hymnal. It would be easy to keep the bargain, to pay the debt she owes. Leave everything behind. Easier than trying to take it all with naught but a loaded musket in her hand, and brother by her side. Behind her, brother stirs, his growl no more than a ragged breath. You've brought him, as agreed. Good. A fair trade for both of us. Let me take him off your hands before you step inside. Because I allow no shackles of love nor duty here. It's best to put away such childish things, and you'll soon learn that freedom's ever so much sweeter than the fetters you have known. In the wan light, brother's eyes are fixed on Susanna's. Brown and faithful, even now. Even now he hearkens to her. Even now he trusts her. It is right that he should trust her. After all, what would he have been without the deal she made? Nothing but another useless crofter's runt, working his fingers to the bone, staggering beneath some richer man's yoke, bending his knees and back beneath the priest's commandments. She does not want Papa's musket or the witch's knife to end Brother's life. She does not want her own life to come undone either and to see her sin turned into human flesh again. She wants it all, just as she always did. The dog by her side, the magic between the illuminated pages, hers to wield. This cottage, their new home. Standing on the threshold, Susanna knows there is a price for everything. For love, for knowledge, for life, for betrayal, too. The muskets loaded, just like she's learned from watching Papa, even though he never would teach her. Here's the match cord lit and smoldering, threaded through the prongs atop the lock. A bit of priming powder in the pan, the right measure of powder down the barrel, too, and a bullet as smooth and warm and heavy as her guilty heart, as her tarnished soul. She's already dropped that bullet down the muzzle, tamping down the ball and powder with the scouring stick. And now she stands here, the lit end of the matchcord glowing hot and red, like a demon's eye in the murk. She thinks of all the things she'd give right now, rather than brother's skull and hide. Even mama's and papa's lives she'd trade without regret. But not him. Not this dog. Not brother. The old woman sees the musket, sees Susanna raising it, aiming it at her head. But she's not worried. She thinks it's loaded with naught but a ball of lead, easily averted. She does not know how patiently Brother waited at the church door while Susanna snatched that hallowed cross off the altar, the mother gazing down upon her sacrilege. She does not know about the silver Susanna snipped off that cross, with Papa's tongs to melt and put into the bullet mold. She does not know about the sardonyx and amber Susanna pried off it and dropped into the ladle as the molten lead and silver swirled there, glossy hot and gray. She does not know about the three long gray hairs Susanna plucked off the woman's cloak ten years ago while she lay sleeping. While the fat wood burned low, While a seven year old girl pondered the deal she'd made, she does not know how safe Susanna has kept those gray strands tucked between the pages of Nana's hymnal. There is no going back, not to who she was ten years ago, before her hot and greedy heart burned away all chances of salvation, not to Mama and Papa telling her each day to marry and be gone, not to church, with the priest leaning close in the confessional, asking about those dog tracks in the snow beside the church gate, about the errant boot prints by the altar. But if the bullet finds its mark, if the witch's craft should come undone, if her skein unravels here, what then for her, what then for brother, What then for both of them? For him, the slow death of a stunted life. For herself, the stocks, the pyre, a shallow grave in unhallowed ground. Susanna grips the musket firmly, brother quivering at her side. He won't leave her, no matter how this ends. No matter what she does or where she goes, because that's how it is how it's always been between them. No matter where the path leads or what words the witch spoke ten years ago to change him or what Susanna did to get what she wanted, through it all, brother's eyes stayed steadfast and true and always will. This dog will follow her to the ends of this world and into the next. She knows the truth of it now, "'standing here at the end and the beginning. "'It isn't easy to shoot a dog, "'not even as a mercy and a kindness, "'not even to spare him the pain and suffering "'otherwise to come. "'Not when your souls and shadows "'have mingled since the day he was wrenched "'from mamma's womb. "'Because the real bargain she made, "'before any other, "'though the words were never spoken,' and Susanna did not understand the weight and depth of it before tonight, was to take care of him, of this dog, her brother, till the end of his days, till the end of hers. It's hard to shoot a witch. Harder still when brother starts barking at the old woman's feet, snapping at her hem and sleeves, but still she must take aim. Hands shaking, she touches the match cord to the powder. The crack and smoke of Papa's musket fills the night. As the tangled bodies of witch and dog collapse in the doorway, Susanna stumbles forward, breathing one word into the silence, a plea and question both. Kneeling, she blinks away the sudden sting of tears and reaches through the bitter smoke, praying for the warmth of fur and breath, praying for the power of sardonyx and amber, praying that the spell won't break.
3: That was Maria Haskins' It's Easy to Shoot a Dog, as read by Josie Babin. Living in that formerly abandoned house on the corner, the one across the street from the cemetery, the one with all those cats lounging about it, you will find Josie happily narrating horror stories. No one has seen her human companion lately, but the cats do look well-fed. Not that those things have anything to do with one another. In between stories, she works on a long list of house projects and car projects. But best of all, she gets to work on lab projects, growing cells into medicine, hopefully making the world a little healthier in the not-so-far-off future. If you're ever in San Diego, stop by to say hi. She'll introduce you to her cats. Thank you, Josie. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. If you're not already a supporter, I encourage you to head over and take a look at our Patreon page, patreon.com/slash tales to terrify. Check out all of the awesome perks. From ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and swag. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. If you're looking for another way to help, why not drop a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts? Ratings and reviews are an easy way that you can help us spread the darkness. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, And myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we twist your troubled mind with more Tales to Terrify.